It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L. D. Azobra, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. Today is going to be a little different. Hi, I'm James Becknell of Smart Brother Media, producers of Count Time Podcast with L.D. Azobra. Today is Count Time's 75th episode. We want to celebrate and congratulate my brother L.D. for over a year's worth of podcasts that are now heard in 25 countries around the world. Congratulations, L.D. So today we're going to have, in honor of this great body of work he's put together, several clips from audience favorite episodes. We start with a clip from interview with Julie B. Moore, the amazing storyteller. This one you need to hear. If you want to hear the whole story, check out the interview with Julie B. Moore, episode 37. And of course it's LD, so you can't go without having some of the episodes with some of sports greatest luminaries. And be sure to stay to the end for clips from future episodes. More count time excellence. And believe me, you're going to want to hear these. So now, the highlights from some of your favorite episodes of Count Time Podcast with L.D. Azobra. The Ku Klux Klan decided on August they, they were, of 1927, they had a meeting and they decided that the uppity ends in the Scotland community was going to burn them out and lynch them. And on that night that they were coming, and the daddy said you could see the flashlights coming. They put the barricade up, and Daddy said, "Wasn't a light, no way, no way, nobody's house." They said, "Let us pray," and they raised their guns to God. And the prayer was, Daddy said, "God, be with us tonight." Amen. And one hundred black men never. And they said, it little pinpoints the light. And my daddy says, it got nearer, they got brighter and brighter. And when he got to the railroad track, 100 black men threw down and said, click, click. That was the only sound you heard after the click, click. <laughs> said, dead silent. And the cars turned around and went back to bad news. And he said, they stayed on their knees. And every man humbled himself to God and said, Tonight, you thank you. And then they got up and sang as they marched on, on with Christian soldiers. Dear friend here, Dr. <laughs> Frail Rivers, welcome to Countdown. Thank you so much, and thanks for inviting me. 1963, we desegregated the public schools in Baton Rouge. They started with our senior year here in Baton Rouge, which was... That was rough then. So yeah, you, where, were you, where were you before that? Southern High. I loved high school. Did not. I was president of the band at Southern High. We had a wonderful class. In fact, I think there were like 14 of us that deseg that year came from the class of Southern High. We developed a family, a, a camaraderie that year that just drew us together. On weekends, we would meet at the Y uh, to kind of deprogram us from all of the atrocities we had suffered that week. We were, we were a pretty close group. We just had to be. We didn't have anybody else. 
However, the, the black schools in the city really supported us that year because Southern High wouldn't let just outsiders come to their events without prior approval. But when we deseg that year, they welcomed us back for all activities. Today, we have another true living legend. His story is beyond what you can imagine. This young man fought for justice for all, not just for himself. He's from out of New Orleans, Louisiana. Welcome, Mr. Ronnie Moore. I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, in the 15th Ward. It's called Algiers. Algiers, right you have to be with Algiers. The river there. That, that's from my beginning of uh, the movement, and the movement started at a very, very young age. It's uh, like 1953 when T.J. Jefferson was doing the bus boycott here in Baton Rouge. I was 13 years old, 1954, when the Supreme Court uh, overturned Plessy versus Ferguson. I, I was 14. And so I, I sort of thought, felt like uh, the white only science had had its day. And it was time that they come down. So I was in the sixth grade with some students, which is all safe school opposite that little park. If you ever go to the Algiers, you'll see that park. And we're playing on the street between the park and the school. And the park had a white-only sign on it, only whites could go in. And in 1954, so we sort of figured out, well, the Supreme Court said it was all right, maybe we should. We went into the park to play. And 15 of us were arrested. We had a conversation with some adults, and they said, well, you know, you have a right to go in the park. The time's not coming, that what you come, we went into the park. And the lady called the police, the police came, arrested 15 of us, and so they called our parents to come get us, you know, like we were not. I didn't know at that time that our parents were going to get involved in the whole process. Matter of fact, we didn't know we were going to get arrested. Huh? We hadn't thought that far about it. We just knew right from wrong. And, you and we knew that segregation was wrong. And that night, uh, in 64, Mike Bless and I had left the Freedom House to go from Johnsville to Monroe. We get halfway, oh, maybe six miles up the road, but we still got 20 more miles to go. And one group of white folks in the truck got in front of us, and two behind us. And we're going to make a U-turn, and then we're going to go back. And the two car loads that was in, in the back blocked the highway. I said, we're going back to the Freedom House, and one of those cars going with us, and I dropped it to 100 miles an hour. But when they became conscious of the fact that there ain't no stopping, they he going back, huh? they opened up, right? And when they opened up, went straight through them. We called the police, and what you call them that? We hit Washington. James Farmer got Kennedy on the phone. Uh, whoever they ever heard about my Jager, who I don't know what's happening. They talking about y'all. They calling the local people, huh? Uh, they about to kill the workers down there. Y'all better go down there and stop them because they're shooting in the Freedom House anyway. We make it to the Freedom House about minutes later when all this happened. Like they already knew what was going on, huh? The four blacks who we had fought to get them their jobs as sheriff, as uh, policemen, and John Burr Police Department. They ordered them to arrest us for 
disturbing the peace and reckless driving. <laughs> you ready for you ready for your life? In attempting, you ready for your life? In attempting to kill good white people on the highway. <laughs> That's serious. Lord have mercy. So the, yeah. the, the good so white people. The, the, the deputies resigned. Before they would come arrested. And they said, no, I'll tell you what we're going to do. They're leaving. They're going to leave here, Jonesboro, and they're going to Monroe like they started on a mission, and they're going back on that highway. That's what the, That's what the deputy told the, the chief of police. Cars got in front of us. Cars got behind us, and a host of cars came from somewhere I do not know with guns and everything else on that highway. You don't have to worry about the claim coming out. <laughs> not tonight. Not tonight. Not tonight. They ain't that crazy, huh? And they escorted us back to Monroe. Those four officers became the architects of what the world knew as the deacons for defense. So you the one. <laughs> <They're organized. laughs> because of because of what you did in Mud, in Jonesburg, they gave right. They organized on their own. They recognized that their mission was to protect the civil rights workers, and they protected us in all the Freedom House. They protected us in Bugaloosa. They were there. That's where Az Young was, and Robert Hicks, all those guys. We had a project in Washington Parish too. They formed their own organization that night. Y'all ready? We're going to celebrate our legend, our World War II veteran, civil rights icon, community leader, a man of valor and honor, no one other than Dr. Johnny A. Jones, who transitioned this past weekend. Yep, he got his wings and he heading up to glory. What a day, what a day. A hundred and two years old. How many get a chance to have been here and observed, seen, I guess what you can almost say, he's seen it all. And I just feel the honor that I was able to share just a little piece of that time with you while you were still here. And you would not have believed how sharp, how clear his mind was at that time. To record, recall dates, time, places, Names of the people who impact his life, from the judges, the community leaders, and what he called a sophisticated Jeffs. <laughs> Y'all got to listen to that podcast. Sophisticated Jeff. That he served in World War II. He was there on D-Day in Normandy. Dr. Jones was there. I know you did tell me you was going to be here till 125, but that's okay. 102? The law said it was time for you to come on in and do what you do. But you finished law school in 1953. That's right, June 11th, I was sworn in. And you said then two weeks later, you took on your first case. 15 days. What happened? Well, they had the bus boycott. The Bad Rouge bus boycott. How, how did the bus boycott come about, do you? The bus boycott when Martha White and two other women took a seat in the front seat of the bus. Well, this, this was before Rosa Parks. Well, who contacted you to get you involved? Yeah, Reverend Jefferson said he wanted me to be the lawyer. And I said, I can't handle a case like that. I'm just out of law school. And he said, Bro Jones, you can handle it. But see, he didn't, he didn't think I was, I was going to 
do what I did. So when I took it, and when I took it, I walked into court, and I say, a right guarantee by the Constitution cannot be bifurcated. Boy, when I say that, gentleman jumped up, and, oh, Brother Jones, insubordinate, insubordinate. <laughs> My daddy heard that over the old radio. Say, man, look, you really get put Jemison down right now. Jemison gonna get y'all killed. We enthused, we excited to have the legendary, the great, the infamous coach, Dale Brown. Azobra, your whole show could be summed up. We could stop right now and concentrate. Stand up and be counted. That's one of the major problems people have. Silence has always been evil's greatest ally. And whenever evil and good compromise, evil always wins. But the NCAA wanted to shut me up. These were three people fighting. We knew what Prop, that Prop 48 was. It was set up to keep blacks from dominating sports. Only three coaches out of 350 basketball coaches spoke up. John Thompson, John Chaney, and the idiot sitting across the table from me in the whole country. You know why? They're making $9 million. They don't want to rock the boat. If they cheat, they don't dare to rock the boat. If they think they may get fired, they got a bad record. So who's there? There's like three of us. You need more than that. We were, um, we were being investigated by the NCAA. Fake, fake investigators, totally 100% wrong. And I fought them immediately. And I was very, very outspoken. So the chancellor called me real nice and said, Coach, listen, he said, could you, could you lower your rhetoric a little with the NCAA? He said, I'm afraid they're gonna get so bitter they're gonna come in and try to take our football down and, he said, could you lower your rhetoric a little bit? All I said to the chancellor was, well, thank you for calling, chancellor. I never said yes, I never said no. Four days later, I get a call from Sports Illustrated. They said they're thinking of coming to Baton Rouge and doing a cover story with me. Would you be interested? Fine. He said, Coach, in conclusion, how would you describe the NCAA in like a sentence? They're Gestapo bastards. I never got another call from the chancellor asking me to lower my rhetoric. And I think right now you're seeing everything I was trying to do is all coming true now. Today, I have a true living legend and a dear friend, teammate, and someone I've been dealing with for a long, long time. And uh, y'all gonna, gonna be excited to have this young man here because he have a true, uh, I mean, a really touching story. A story that gonna move you because it has moved me every time I've heard it. Mr. <laughs> Ramsey Dada. So when you showed up, you showed up at LSU in 1979. That's right. You, Leonard Marshall, who else in that crew? Me, Leonard Marshall, Lawrence uh, Williams. Alan Richer, uh, Lawrence Williams, Albert Richardson. Malcolm Scott? Malcolm, Malcolm Scott, Tim Joyner. 
Yeah, it, was, it was a crew, man. Oh, yeah, it was a crew. I mean, y'all y'all can't really play. Yeah, we can't really take somebody's job. Oh, man, y'all <laughs> y'all changed the whole, y'all took LSU to a whole nother level. <laughs> yeah, when y'all okay. showed up there. I don't want to lie to y'all. Uh, just remember it, we did. Oh, man, just to watch, remember how you and uh, Big Lenny, who we called Big Cheese at the time, which is my homeboy. Yeah, right. Uh, y'all would line up on that front line. Oh, man. Y'all man, it was, was, was destroyed. It, it was nasty disaster. Matter of fact, fact Coach Joe showed up the same time in your, in your class, too, That's right? right? Coach Ogeron showed That's up. That's right. And uh, I think after the first few days, because he was a. He was a, they put him at DN. DN. No, defensive tap. Defensive tap. Say same thing. You know, you had, in, in that position. And it, it wasn't no place for him, so they nah, moved the offense. Exactly. And so he didn't stay that long. No, nah, he left. Went to, went to see Bobby Ebert, his old high school teammate. <laughs> <laughs> he won't get no PT. <laughs> so, so y'all, you had Richardson, uh, Big Lenny, Lenny, Tim uh, Joyner, L. Cole. Uh, I mean, y'all shut it down. Y'all literally did. What was that experience like for you when you first showed up at LSU? Old oh, country boy coming out, well, out of the You know, when I first come to LSU, I was really, I was really, I was really, to be honest with you, I don't want to use that word because it's, it's really some people look at it as a bad word, but I'm going to use it anyway because that's how I felt. I felt pissed off. <laughs> Why was it? Because, first of all, I made all American high school all American, but I didn't make it to the but I didn't make it I didn't make it to the uh, to the All Star game. High school All Star game, and I didn't think, to be honest with you, you made high school all American, but didn't get picked for the high school All Star. Yeah. So you so you had a chip on your shoulder. So I had a bad chip on my shoulder because you know why, huh? Because I know I played against. A lot of dudes that ended up going to college, like them two boys from St. Martinville, they ended up getting scholarships at Oklahoma. LSU won them, but they, they went to Oklahoma. Daryl Charles and and and, uh, uh, and I can't think of the other one, Fontenay. But I played against a lot of dudes that went to college, and there was nothing to me, man, in high school. They, they couldn't compete with you. They couldn't compete that, with that me, man. Now, what was you played in high school? I, everywhere, <laughs> on defense. Everywhere on defense, I played linebacker, I played nose guard, I played defensive man. Yeah, well, I, I, anywhere they had a bad player, <laughs> the best player on the team, the best player on the they team, they would line you up against. That's what I'm gonna be. <laughs> That's what I'm gonna be. You know what I'm saying? And to be honest with you, I I I, I just gotta be honest. I'm not bragging or nothing like that. That because there's nothing to brag about. Because I know that they had a lot of players better than me, but I'm just telling you about my story. Is I didn't feel nothing in high school could block me, because there was nothing in high school could block me. To be honest with you, I'm just being straight up. I had the most sacks in LSU as Noah's guard in LSU history, right? But Booger McFarlane came and beat me. Okay. I had okay. 15 in my career. You like Booker Beach. So when you when you got to the NFL, your teammates, you already getting high. And now you and right in the middle of it with all this money, it's like the old folks, they got what's up there. Because you got access to it everywhere you look. So you get high yeah. with teammates. And boy, they had all of them. They had a bunch of them. I have coach Linda Blanc. This is the the, the young man at 82 years of age now, 
who recruited me to come to LSU. And I'm so forever grateful and to be a part of the Tiger Nation, have the opportunity to play at LSU. So it's just so much to say about you, Coach. You played under the great Coach Paul Deezer. That's correct. Uh, you played in the 1950s. I was, I was a freshman in 1956, and the freshmen were not allowed to play varsity ball then. And we had a hell of a football team as freshmen, Billy Cannon, Johnny Robinson, Warren Rabb, and all that bunch. And uh, then as a freshman, not a freshman, but a sophomore in 1957, I, I was a starting left tackle and defensive right end on the first unit. Billy Cannon, I got I'm kind of proud of it, Billy Cannon and I were the only two players off that 56 team that started every game, 30, no, 10, 10 a year for three years in two bowl games. Billy Cannon and I. So, but anyway, we started in 57 and stayed there until I graduated. I didn't let anybody beat me out, but I, I never got hurt seriously enough to go to the training room and let somebody step in and take my place. So I just played hurt most of the time to, to keep my spot. But anyway, 56 freshman and 59 my last year, national championship, 58. And so you, you was part of the first LSU That's right. national championship exactly. team. Exactly, exactly. How was that back then? What was the well, atmosphere like back then? You know, the stadium that was built, the whole 64,000 people, I think, was maxed out like 30,000 until we got there as freshmen. And we had more people come to the freshman football game that year uh, especially the one against Ole Miss, we beat them like 41 to 20, maybe, or 18. But, uh, you know, it's it just nobody, there wasn't excitement there. But when we started winning, about the fifth game of, the, of 1958, yeah, well, you couldn't buy a ticket. And the fans were just wild and crazy. They had, to, they had uh, students rallied on the campus. They had panty raids and marches and all kind of stuff. And uh, they hung Billy Cannon in effigy somewhere, you know, and they dropped pamphlets on the football field for us to read like somebody's going to beat the hell out of us. I mean, they did all kind of crazy things, you know, out of a – but the student body, man, they were wild. Fans were wild. And uh, we started filling the stands up like midway of the 58 season and the rest of, rest of its history. And one good thing I'm very, very proud of after the season, my teammates voted me permanent team captain. Which I, that's one of the, you know, I, I wasn't all American, honorable mention, stuff like that, but, you know, uh, I was all SEC sophomore, but the, as I got up, you know, in the junior, the senior, I was second team, third team, but my buddies, my peers voted me there, and that, that was something I was real proud of. But anyway, a lot of good memories. Uh, that's, that's a lot of great, that's history, that's, that's part of your history. Well, you know, talking about, you know, signing. I was known as the black recruiter at LSU at that time. <laughs> I mean, you, you signed, I think that must have signed a guy that before Clinton, I can't remember his name, but Clinton. Harrison Morel, Francis. You, uh, uh, Leonard Marshall, uh, Gregory Bowser, Johnson. Okay. I've signed Rubisky. You know, I mean, oh, we just, okay. just, there's a couple more down the line, I guess, but. I was known as the black recruiter. I said, well, that's the ones that can play. I'm going to get the ones that can play. I don't care whether they're black, white, or purple. Well, well, you know. I, think, I think laughter and is the best remedy for everything, just laughing and having a good time rather than being mumped up, you know, 
pissed off at this person. Anyway, just kind of be as happy as you can and just roll with the punches a little bit. Coach, it's ironic that you speak about laughter and being happy. You didn't you didn't laugh when I was <laughs> playing for you. Oh, well, I don't know. It's you stayed pissed off. I've changed. I've changed. I, I, I kind of look back on some of the things mm. and the way I talked to some players. I regret it, but you can't take it back. Matter of fact, you, you, you was really hard on my roommate. I thought he should have played better than he did, but he was just a kind of a gentle giant, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? And I, I, I can remember some, you know, coaching him. I didn't really do him right, really. But uh, you can't take it back. It's gone, you know. Clips from future episodes. <laughs> but, you, but you've announced some big, big-time games, some big, big explosive games in Tiger Stadium. Yeah. I mean, over 30-something years, we yeah. all can imagine sitting there. Okay, now, give, what is game day like for – Dan Barney, what is game day like for you? It's, it's very uneventful. You'd be surprised. It's like, it's like, it's like an organ grinder pointing to a monkey, you know? <laughs> All right, go. And, and, and I just grind it, you know? All I do is read it. I don't write it. You know, people say, man, they said, what do you do? I said, I call the plays after they run them. <laughs> I mean, I don't call them before they run them, you know? Okay, that's a good way to look at it. So, uh, we go through all those spots. Then uh, we bring the team on. They do their their pregame warm-ups. Then they go out and then we bring them on again. And that's when it all breaks loose. It's Saturday night in Death Valley. Here come your fighting Tigers of LSU. They come through the shoot. Play go, the place goes crazy. The guy who called me voice, and he uses it uh, even to this day, is Skip Bertman. Because Skip, you know, Skip's got a way of calling people what they do rather than what they are, you know. Uh, uh, he'll call you, uh, you know, uh, football guy. See, football guy. That's you. That's Lyman White. You know, football star. Well, he he called. He doesn't call me. He calls me voice. 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 So, you know, I say, he voice. He he he. Um, Lyman, you know, after every uh, after every home game. Uh, after every game, the coach has a, a press conference uh, Monday after every game, and uh, at that game, uh, the uh, the uh, talks about the previous game, talks about the coming up game, and everybody's a free lunch. So I go because I eat free. <laughs> after one of those games, when Coach Saban was uh, coach, uh, Skip was the athletic director back then. After uh, Joe left. And uh, Skip walked up to me after one of these, and he says, voice. He says, I got an email from a guy who says that uh, uh, they're not taking off their hats for the national anthem. Uh, He said, it's disrespectful. He's announced to please remove your hats for the playing of the national anthem. So I said, well, Skip, I'd love to do that. I said, but you have to understand, the band is all about tradition, you see. The band is, they've been doing the same thing for years and years and years. I mean, in fact, they've been doing the same thing since General Sherman was president of LSU in 1860. And they don't like to change. <clears throat> out of the blue. He says, uh, voice. And by this time, you know, he's, uh, he's rolling up his sleeves like he's coaching third base. And he's scratching himself in places where you, you can't show. He says, voice. He says, do you know how much a tuba costs? I said, no. I said, he said, well, he says, last week I bought the band seven tubas. He says, when the band needs tubas, they come to Skip. See, Skip buys the band tubas. 
He said, they've got 32 tubers now. He says, you know how much a hotel room costs in New Orleans for a bowl game? You know, I could skip. <laughs> He's still scratching. I said, yeah. I said, costly. He said, well, yeah. He said, see, the band doesn't want, you know, four to a room. It's too crowded. <laughs> he says, they got too many tubas. He says, they want two to a room. They don't want four days. No, voice. He says, they want six. And six days. I give them two to a room, he says. I give him six days. He says, uh, you tell whoever makes the announcements about the band that this has nothing to do with tradition and everything to do with tubas and hotel rooms. He walked off. So I called the guy who does the band. I said, Skip would like you to announce. Please remove your hats for the playing of the national anthem. And oh, by the way, do you know how much a tuba costs? <laughs> you did tell him I explained that. it to him. So now before every, not just for a football game, before every athletic event, we say, please remove your hats for the playing of the national anthem. Now, now Lyman, the moral of that story is that one person made that happen. Just one person had a good idea, a good recommendation, and he made it to a person who had the power to do something about it. So I teach that too when I talk to the kids in groups. I said, you know, the, the, there's tremendous power in one person making a recommendation or asking the right question. So now, fast forward a few years, the Texas Rangers are in the World Series, and I get a call, and it's Stanley Bertman on my caller ID. So I pick it up, he says, voice. He says, uh, did you hear the PA guy at Texas Stadium tonight for the World Series? I said, no, Skip, I, I didn't hear it. Well, he said, please remove your hats for the playing of the national anthem. We're making progress. And he hung up. <laughs> well, y'all better get ready, folks, because today going to be another doozy. But it's Sybil Heidel Morial, because the Heidel Ma. My maiden name, I know my ancestry. To make sure you catch every episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app by searching for Count Time Podcasts with LD Zobra. And or join Count Time's member list for weekly alerts about upcoming episodes. You can find that on the smartbrothermedia.com website. Click on the menu, go to Count Time Episodes. Man can shackle the hand, the man can shackle the feet, but only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time.